AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 high quality ingredients. And what that means is each morning when I wake up, before I do anything else, I drink AG1 to set me up for the day. It keeps me clear headed, full of energy and focused on whatever I need to do, like writing the fighting cock, for example. One scoop once a day before breakfast and that's it. I've actually found that I've not been needing coffee in the morning to get me started. I've still been drinking coffee because I love coffee, but it's not because it's like a necessity to do so. AG1 is made out of the highest quality ingredients subject to the strictest manufacturing standards. AG1 is NSF certified for sport and this process involves exhaustive testing and verification that every serving of AG1 is exactly what you see on the label. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs for your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash the fighting cock. That's drinkag1.com forward slash the fighting cock to get started. And to help the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a great day and enjoy the show. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This summer, when you're on the go, stay connected to what matters most with access to over 3 million Cox Wi Fi hotspots. Learn more at Cox.com. Ask Ashley the Podcast is sponsored by Cox. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. It's the fighting. Tactics and facts, mate, yeah? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fighting Cock, The Extra Inch. I'm Wendy, and I'm joined once again by my sidekick and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Wendy. And we're also joined by Nathan, also known as Talking Top and Tactics. All right. And we're delighted to welcome Jack Pitbrook 
from the Independent Newspaper. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Jack. Thanks for coming down. Good to have you. First non-Spurs guest we've had on the Extra Inch, so you should be very, very proud of that. I certainly am. Um, I think I first spotted you on Twitter when I started noticing a slight, um, how did I phrase it earlier, sympathetic uh, like liking towards Spurs from you. Um, you don't support Spurs, uh, but you, you, follow, you cover us quite a lot for the independent newspaper, um, and you seem to have a soft spot for us. Yeah, I do often, I don't know if it, accused is the right word, but I do often get accused of being a Spurs fan on Twitter uh, and by people that I meet a lot of the time. So I'm aware that this, this perception exists. Uh, but no, you're right. I, I in fact don't support Spurs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like covering Spurs. I've been doing it for the Indy for sort of four or five years now. Uh, so I don't do. I probably do more Spurs than I do any other team. Uh, I and you know, it's kind of it's quite natural, really. I think when you cover a team, you get to know the players, you get to know the manager, you get to know the staff, you get to you know whether it's people who work at the club, people who work with the players. You know, it's it's. You know, family is like an overused word, but it's certainly like a group of people that you get to know well, and naturally, it means that you're kind of in slightly you're slightly invested in them, in their success. Like I, you know, we're recording this the two days before the cup semi final. Uh, you know, it would be really it'd be part. There is part of me that wants Spurs to win, and like I cover Chelsea a bit too, but I cover Spurs more. Uh, and it would be interesting to see. I would like to cover Spurs in the final, basically, for for quite obvious professional reasons. So there is a bit of sympathy there. It's not like I mean, it is nothing like being a fan. Like it's not like I'm half a Spurs fan or even a quarter of a Spurs fan. But I do like covering them. I do get on with a lot of people there, and I do. And I do generally speaking want to see them do well. Are you allowed to say who you do support, or is that? Uh, yeah, like I'm not. I'm not embarrassed about it. I support Manchester City, um, but I. I don't go and see them as a fan very much anymore. I think I, this is actually going to be the first season for about 12 years that I haven't. I don't think I'll get to a game as a fan, although I do cover them a lot for work. But it's so, it is so different when you're a journalist. Like, it's not, you know, you can be so... You have to be much more dispassionate about it, and so it doesn't ruin, ruin my weekend if mm. City win or lose at all anymore. That's interesting, because I... I mean, Dan Kilpatrick, who um, is a friend of the Fighting Cock, and... He's got his own very good podcast, Tottenham Way. He's he's spoken of a similar kind of feeling recently about how his job's affected the way he feels about his club. Um, and it's not all negative because he's had opportunities to do some amazing things with, with Spurs and you know meet Maurizio Pochettino, which so many Spurs fans would love to do, that kind of thing. But um, it definitely impacts the way he celebrates things, for example. So he can't jump out of his seat when the goal goes in. He, he couldn't really celebrate the... Um, any of the recent comebacks or um, thrashings of, of Bournemouth at White Hart Lane in the way that he would have done as a fan. And that must impact kind of your experience of football generally, I guess. A bit, yeah. Like, it does... It does... I mean, in, the, in one sense, you're exposed to, like, the ugly workings of the football industry mm. in a way that a fan naturally wouldn't be. And that does kind of change how you feel about things. You get a much clearer sense that ultimately, as much as you might... I mean, people always. If you're a fan, you love to say he loves the club. He loves, he kissed the badge. He loves playing for Tottenham or City or whoever. Whereas when you work in football, you realise that at the end of the day, it's eleven blokes doing a job for yeah. money. Yeah. And if they get offered more money elsewhere, then nine times out of ten they take it. Uh, so it does make you a bit more dispassionate. You're also like much more attuned to 
the bad things that your club might do or the ways in which your club might not live up to the ideals that you would hope they would do. So, for example, I've written quite a lot of stuff about the Man City Academy recently, which is, on one hand, very celebrated because it's, it's a very good academy, but on mm. the other hand, it's very unpopular with all the other academies because of their approach to recruitment and mm. all the rest of it. So it does it does give you a kind of warts and all view of football, um, which means that... Uh, I mean, disillusion might be too strong a way of putting it, but it does it does kind of open your eyes to the realities of the industry. And beyond that, also, there's a simple fact that, like, f- most football fans experience football as their release or their escape from their nine-to-five, whether it or their job or school or whatever. Whereas if covering football is your job, then it is it, it cannot be a release in the same way. Like, you might really enjoy it, you might love it, you might want Tottenham to win, but it's just not the same as being something which you hide away in from whatever you're doing with the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and so that is a change as well, and that is something which uh, means that you, you know, if you cover football eighty, ninety percent of your time, you inevitably have to find something else to go and lose yourself in, because otherwise, uh, you're never, you know, you're going to be kind of in the bubble twenty four seven, which is quite unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but I'm interested. Um, do you, I, I've kind of, I've got this. Um, notion that football journalists tend to carve out a sort of niche for themselves in in some way um, these days, and I'm, I'm sure they already always have done. So, for example, um, I don't know. Jonathan Wilson's got his history and tactics nerdery. Um, Barney Roney is a bit of a wordsmith and is fantastic at coming up with these extravagant metaphors. Do you feel like you have a particular niche? I mean, from my perspective, you do seem fairly analytical uh, compared to a lot of journalists who might write more about uh, more general feelings towards a club. Um, is that would you say um, fair to say? I'm not sure that's how. I, I mean, I think you're right that, like, in such a competitive industry, like people need, or often people would need to be very good at something to stand mm. out. I don't think of myself as like having some, a particular field or a particular skill which I'm particularly good at. Um, I guess basically, I just like, you know, I just like doing kind of in-depth research on mm. whatever topic I'm writing about, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a player or a, a manager or something which, like, some foreign team that people might not have heard of, and just going away and doing a lot of research and writing about it in a way which I hope is engaging. Yeah, that definitely comes across. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. From my perspective, it always came across. Um, it's one of the reasons I started following you on Twitter. Um, Okay, I mean, I guess we should probably move on because otherwise uh, we'll get accused of not talking about Tottenham at all. But one thing I just wanted to end on uh, with Jack, we had a question from Modric THFC on Reddit who said, ask Jack why any fan should care about a journalist's opinion of game when they spent the entire second half writing their match report. This is not having a go at Jack. I like Jack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that Modric TFC has got that absolutely right. Uh, most journalists do, in fact, spend... The, most of the second half and quite a lot of the first half particularly if it's an evening game writing their report uh, and you know it's, I don't feel like I'm kind of betraying the industry to say that you know that does sometimes shine through in the report yeah. like you can kind of a lot of the time you'll decide something at half time you'll say this is my angle on the game more or less and then you'll just 
pray that whatever happens in the second half, you can kind of fit within those parameters. So the cliched game of two halves is a bad thing for a journalist? Oh, God, it's the yeah. worst thing. Yeah. Or no, the worst thing, I mean, a game of two halves is kind of rescue, but what's even worse would be if the game completely hinged on like 65 minutes <laughs> or 70 minutes. Because uh, at that point, you're screwed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he is absolutely right. That is a real thing that, that exists, and that's not an unfair criticism. What I would say, I guess, in defence of journalists is that ideally, like in a match report, or a piece from a game, you would be like working in insights that you've gleaned over the course of the week or the season yeah. from talking to the players, to the manager, to agents, contacts, all that kind of stuff. And therefore, your match report won't just be like, and then on the 10th minute, uh, Ericsson crossed it to Ali, you handed it in. Ideally, your match report would be like including insights that you've gained and worked on over the previous amount of time. And therefore, it's not just dependent on the facts of the match. But I mean, he's, he ultimately, yeah, he's right. It's a, it's a fair point. <laughs> when I did, um, I studied, um, I did an NCTJ, and I remember the, in the sports writing, they used to um, give us a football match, which was always like an obscure football match to kind of practice our match reporting. And there would always be someone who would kind of like sneak and find out what the match was, and then you could kind of pre-write it. So you kind of <laughs> knew, you knew there would be that last-minute goal, so you could prepare yourself. Because they used to like sit us down, test us, show us the game, and then bang, you had to write your match report and email it to the to the lecturer as soon as, as soon as it finished. It's quite a test, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it was quite, we used well, to watch a to... lot of like England under eighteen games, right. like from a few years ago, which obviously you didn't know the score. I remember one year it was like the the Leeds Sunderland Cup final, like from the seventies. That like obviously you had to quickly write it according to like the giant killing that it was. That's really hard. You don't even really know the players as well. It's, you've yeah, got yeah, that yeah, extra yeah. research to do. It was. Um, I mean, if any, if there's younger listeners, I found it really interesting to do that course and learning shorthand and a bit about the industry. I never went into it, but um, it was it, it was good. Uh, it was good, good transferable course. skills. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're going to move on to talking about tactics, because that's kind of what we do. So the first talking point really today is about the kind of technical experimentation in the Premier League this season. Um, and we'll, we'll sort of bring Spurs into it as well. Um, I, for me, if last year was the year of the press, this year has been the year of the back three. Um, so Conte first at Italy and then at Chelsea has kind of brought this over, I guess, to, to the Premier League. And I mean, Watford played with the back three at times last year mm-hmm. um, already, but certainly Chelsea have made it more high profile and have mastered the back three, arguably. Spurs followed suit not too long after. And now we've even got Arsenal playing a back three for the first time in God knows how long. Um I mean, what have you guys found this season interesting tactically? Do you feel like it's a, a change from the norm? Yeah, I think um, that we're heading into the tactically most interesting um, period of time in the history of the Premier League, where you've got um, Cruyff-influenced football, you've got Bielsa, Germanic football, all coming together at the same time and giving you a real mix and a really tactically interesting uh, series of matchups week in, week out. Yeah, I agree, and I mean it is quite funny to see Arsene Wenger, the pioneer, who who did change the Premier League, the way teams played, just running out of ideas and just playing a back three. And he was quite fortunate; he came up against the Middlesbrough side that were toothless. But um, it does it's quite interesting that how teams are having to kind of like is the fad at the moment. It was four three three a while ago when, with Mourinho, and now um, now the back three's in fashion. Yeah, it's quite. I mean, I think that's a good point about Wenger. Like it. He, he's not, for all his strengths, Wenger, he's not someone who 
comes up with a different plan for every match. Like mm-hmm. he's actually, I don't think he actually thinks tactically at all. It's much, it's much more about like creating an environment for his players to play well. And so when even he does this, noting that everyone else has done it, and I think he he feels like he has to do something different to look like he's not just a dinosaur. That shows kind of how prevalent really the idea is. Yeah, there was a comment on um, Arsenal Fan TV where one of them said, "Just play it back through. Everyone's doing it." And it's it's, it's the can't just play it back through. It's not just something that you just do. Like, okay, lads, today we're going to play it back through. It's something you got to work at, and you yeah. have to have the right players to do it. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say because for me. Arsenal don't really have the right players to play it back three, so it sort of felt a bit odd mm-hmm. um, that they reverted to um, this formation and dropped Bayern, who he hasn't been as good this year, granted, but he's certainly one of their better players, in my opinion. Yeah. And suddenly they're, he's on the bench, they're playing Oxlade-Chamberlain as a right wing-back, where he's, he's wanted to play in the centre for the last... Um, six months or so. I mean, personally, I think Wenger should go to prison for crimes to football. <laughs> Oxley chamberlain is an excellent footballer and it's one of the very few Arsenal players that I like. And he's just being, he's having his life destroyed by Wenger. He needs, someone needs to rescue him, just <laughs> kidnap him and take him somewhere else because he, even at right wing back, he showed that he's a decent footballer. Yeah, he was probably their best player. Yeah, and it's just such a shame that if he went under a manager who, who kind of coaches and improves players, someone like, I don't know, Pochettino, for example, he would be he would be an amazing mm. amazing player. It would never happen, but it would be great to see him at Tottenham. Yeah, it? I'm sure like a lot of those young Arsenal players, Oxlade Chamberlain would do really well under Pochettino because he's mm. got he's got the first. I mean, he's got the physical profile which you need to play for Tottenham. He's got the um, he's got the kind of versatility. He's already quite experienced. Mm-hmm. You think he could do really well? Another another Arsenal player I think could do really well at Tottenham. Again, it won't happen, but just speaking hypothetically, it's Aaron Ramsey. Like, Ramsey's an amazing player. He's so like. People have got. I think people get him wrong all the time. Like he is an incredible runner, a brilliant footballer, a brilliant finisher, who just kind of a bit out of place. Mm-hmm. And I think he would be much better in a system and a team which valued kind of running and pressing, yeah. which he does so well. He's, so, yeah, exactly. He's, he could do like a Lallana job at Liverpool, something like that, where it has become the, the season of these kind of players who. You know they're not central midfielders. They're not wide men, but they're kind of they got energy and they can read the game. They can understand it, and um, it has been an interesting season. And it's been good to see um, to see Liverpool back there challenging and doing some interesting things as well. I mean, talking we spoke about Oxley Chamberlain playing on the right, obviously, but Moses was the one who was first converted uh, of, of all the kind of wide players um, this season. And he, he took on the right wing back mantle incredibly quickly. And you, you said, Bardi, um, you know, you can't just change their back three. But Chelsea did it, adapted so quickly and Spurs also adapted so quickly. And I think there's, that's a lot to do with the fact that the way teams were playing the 4-2-3-1 was in some ways very, very similar to playing a 3-4-3 anyway with the one deep line midfielder dropping back into the to defensive pair and making it a three the full-backs already being advanced and this is giving them an opportunity to bomb on even more. Um, obviously, as Spurs fans, we know that Walker and Rose have done that magnificently and they're both in the Premier League team of the season announced recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know how di- how difficult it is to adapt. It, it, it's been made to feel quite easy, in a way. Well, because the, the teams that have done it have had a lot of success, but... I don't think it is that easy. You've got to have the right centre-backs, firstly. Mm-hmm. You've got, they've got to be good on the ball. And then you do have to have athletic wing-backs. Um, I wouldn't say... I know, I, I completely disagree saying it's easy. Spurs and Chelsea have done it, but they 
had a manager who understands it and they've had players who understand it. So you think it's down to good coaching? Yeah, if, 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 if players can play, mm. then it, it works. Because, I mean, Stoke have even recently attempted the back three as well, which is, I don't know, Mark Hughes isn't the most astute coach in the Premier League, put it that way, and I don't think their players, their centre-backs are the most mobile. So it'll be interesting to see how that experiment goes. I mean, you can sort of just chuck out a back three. I mean, uh, Michael Dawson played under Steve Bruce in the back three of the hole, and, and we see, we, it's always been uh, present or close to present in the Premier League. So it, it is just sort of a shape you can play, but if you want to play it like Spurs do and like Chelsea do and have two really aggressive in possession wide centre-backs who push up into midfield and then have one centre-back staying on his own, that, that requires... Um, a talented manager yeah I agree there's a difference between a back three and a back five playing and having full backs that kind of sit and having a flat back five yeah and actually Pochettino has said quite recently that he thinks that people make too much of a big deal of the fact that Tottenham have played sometimes with a three and sometimes with a four this season because last season he built the team in such a way that Dyer could always drop back in between Alderweireld and Vertonghen mm-hmm. or into a back three and therefore, he says that you know you shouldn't get too preoccupied with the difference between the two systems because ultimately, last year Spurs would often switch to a back three in possession anyway. Mm. So it's not as much of a big deal as people make out because they're already comfortable playing those playing those roles. That's, I, I certainly agree with that, and I think that's something I've thought for a while that I don't think he's tied specifically to a formation. And we saw that um, recently. We switched back to four two three one in the second half against Burnley and then subsequently against Swansea, Watford and Bournemouth. And that was due to Wanyama being out injured and Dyer needing to be back into midfield. And he, he didn't think twice about that, that change. He was limited in a way by personnel because Winks has got injured and it's, it's caused us a problem. Um, but I think he's more focused on getting the best at the time 11 players onto the pitch in a formation than playing a specific formation personally. Um, having said that um, and I don't want to date the podcast too much and it'll be interesting to listen back I imagine that he will match up with Chelsea in the cup final and Son might be on the bench so that that could completely counteract the point I've I've just made but do you feel generally that um, the shift back to 4-2-3-1 has been just because of of injuries and and the personnel available yeah I, I think I think it has been um, Davies injury to Rose yeah. uh, injury to Wanyama has kind of forced his hand but it's quite nice for us to have a plan B often it was a stick to beat Pochettino with that we couldn't switch it up but now we're showing that we can uh, essentially uh, in order to build out from the back the way Pochettino wants to he wants to get his centre-backs into wide areas and you can do that either by starting with centre-backs in wide areas or you can do that by having Dyer drop from midfield and they move out and Dyer's a competent passer and Dembele can move further forward um, so uh, we need Dyer on the pitch either mm. way whether he's a wide centre back or in the field the Wanyama Dembele two doesn't really work because Wanyama won't drop deep and he's not a great passer um, but yeah as, as, as Pochettino has said there are essentially different shapes different ways of achieving the same things and, and playing the same way it's interesting because it I mean it gives us when everyone's fit, a real selection dilemma. And that's something we've not had at Spurs, in my opinion, for for quite a while. I mean, since probably Redknapp. Um, we've got genuine decisions to make all over the pitch. I mean, when you think Lamella's going to come back, he'll probably be a bench player to begin with, of course. But 
when Lamella's at the top of his game, he's a terrific player, and you would think he would need to be on the in the starting eleven at some point. Um, Son, obviously, one of the hottest players of the, of the second half of the season, in unbelievable form, um, and he's not guaranteed a starting spot. It's it's so nice and refreshing to have these options, and it must be quite difficult for Pochettino to make these decisions at the moment. Um, and I don't think he's a manager that necessarily looks at the team he's about to play every week and says, "Okay, I need to do this to to match up to that side." Bardi was speaking before the recording, and you mentioned the Liverpool game where perhaps he should have been a bit more conservative and and played ten ten fifteen yards deeper. Yeah, a little bit more pragmatic. Yeah. Um, he doesn't do that. He hasn't tended to do that. The only time I remember him doing that is when we against Arsenal uh, last season. Uh, in, no, away, in, in his, uh, his, his first, first season, season. Sorry, yeah. yeah. But where, that was, he was limited because he had Kabul. Yes. Yeah, so you had exactly. to just put him on the goal line. But I can't think can't of what for the Wayne last season, last Christmas. He played three centre backs. That was to, the first time he'd done it, wasn't it? To counteract to Galo and Dini. Mm. But yeah, generally speaking, his approach is one, it's like proactive. Like he's not. It's he wants his team to play his football in the mm. best possible way, and he doesn't really care about. Well, he obviously does care about stopping the opposition, but he wants to do that through proactive football rather than like reactively, like Mourinho. Uh, and secondly, I think you're right that how he the system he chooses to play is determined by the individuals that he wants on the pitch. Basically, it's not like he thinks that you know three four two one or four two three one is like a magic key to winning a game. Yeah. He just wants. He wants the right guys on the pitch, and then he'll play the system which which happens to fit. You're quite a Lamella fan, aren't you, Jack? I love Lamella. Yeah, I love Lamella. Um, I I think that you know he's got a very rare rare mix of skills. You don't really get people who are that physical and also that technical. And I think that he has. I think in part one of the reasons why Spurs maybe weren't so good at times this year is because they had to kind of. You know, four two three one with Lamella was the system last year, and this year it took them a while to find other ways of playing without him. That said, equally, and I love Lamella, but you could now say has the team moved on without him in such a way that if he let you know, if in theory he was fit for Saturday or for any big game over the end of the season, would he get in the team? No, I mean he wouldn't. He wouldn't play the three four three. He wouldn't play the four two three one because he got Son. Mm. Um, he would just be a bench player, and ultimately, he's not really a bench player. So, um, and what happens with him in the summer, I don't know. I'd be, I, I think Spurs would be open to selling him. Put it like that, if they could get, if they could get close to the money they spent on him back, because that's really what's going to determine it. Is if they, mm. you know, if someone could offer twenty million plus, but that's Inter or Milan or someone, then I'm sure that Tottenham would take it. Um, if they're not going to get that much money, I think they probably will end up giving him a new contract just to preserve his value because he's got two years left in his current deal. But yeah, um, unfortunately, I'd be uh, if I had to bet now, I'd say he probably won't be at Tottenham next season. I'd, I'd love us to hang on to him. I think having that extra attacking midfielder who can play a clever reverse pass um, and who really engages with the press, but also, I mean, the fact that it would allow us then to ride good form. So the way Son's been playing he hasn't been playing like that all year and it's you know it's ludicrous to expect that he would so it gives you the opportunity to bring players in and out of the team as and when they're playing well which most attacking midfielders will play in, play well or poorly in patches Eriksen had a poor start to the year and he if we'd had another option then he might have been on the bench um, so it just gives us that extra backup. 
Yeah, it gives us uh, depth for Ericsson, which is something that we have lacked for a long time. Uh, Lamella isn't a, a like-for-like replacement. He's not a, a, a true playmaker. Um, but he will give us... Uh, because Ericsson plays nearly every minute, and, mm. and we're <laughs> due an injury for him, and that would be chaotic. So um, <laughs> uh, the question is... Will Lamella accept a squad role having previously been in the starting 11 week in, week out? Mm. That's the big thing. Okay, so we've been talking about how we kind of bring the ball out from the back, and that all starts with the goalkeeper. Um, I know Bardi's a, a bit of a keeper fanboy uh, <laughs> because he played as a goalkeeper as a kid, and he's just always watched goalkeepers since. Stems from my days of. Um... Trying to make it as a professional goalkeeper, I think Peter <laughs> Shilton was one of like my first football crushes. I really? remember sending him a letter just before the 1990 World Cup, and asking, so sweet. asking my dad for the address, and he just said Peter Shilton, baseball ground, Derby. <laughs> <laughs> Gave me a stamp when I posted. I have no idea if it ever made it. Or you never heard back. You never got a signed photo. No, I didn't, I didn't get anything, <laughs> bastard. <laughs> Uh, you've been doing some research into the role of the goalkeeper well it's it's just because as Spurs fans we whenever the ball goes back to lorries we always start to get a little bit nervous and especially when you go to the ground people start kind of like just kick it just kick it because (laughs) of the the way he's playing short so um, obviously I'm a big fan of Jonathan Wilson and I, I love his book The Outsider so I was kind of reading through that and then other things and just looking at how the position of the goalkeeper has changed and it was like 1912 man they could catch the ball pretty much anywhere in their own half and then they changed the law to like just in your box and then obviously after the really stale World Cup in 1990 we had the change with the back pass law mm. and all of a sudden the goalkeeper became involved but as with any of these kind of things it all stems at Ajax with Rinas um, Michels who obviously was coaching Cruyff, and then they kind of saw the goalkeeper as their kind of playmaker, someone to be involved, cut out attacks, and then from there it's kind of it's kind of gone through and continued, especially at Ajax with like Van der Sar was like the first big um, passback goalkeeper who couldn't use his hands, and he was he was the first one to kind of become that kind of sweeper keeper, especially in Europe where. <clears throat> before it didn't really happen here. I would disagree with that because I we had a rush goalkeeper at my uh, school on the playground. <laughs> um, so I would say that we're probably the inventors of uh, the sweeper keeper. Well, I used to get lobbed quite often as a goalkeeper because I used to try my one of another as I grew older. I used to love um, Giorgio Campos and then obviously Chilavel, all these kind of guys. And I used to try and play <laughs> really high. And obviously, as we know, the advantage of having a sweeper keeper is you get, you're able to play your defensive line a lot higher and um, squeeze the pitch. But I, I did used to get lobbed quite a lot. I think that we will um, continue to see a trend in keepers towards uh, more <laughs> passy keepers yeah. um, and, and, and also sweepers. And that's two separate things when we talk about sweeping. I think that they get lumped together a lot. Yeah. Is, is, uh, and Lloris is the perfect example because he's the second best in the world at coming off his line aggressively and intersecting the ball but he's a as we've mentioned a minute ago uh, not a great passer do you, do you find that problematic that he's not a great passer I, I say that because I don't remember too many times where he's put us under pressure with his passing across the period of time that he's been with us um, he will periodically hit poor passes but they'll generally go out of play and that's not too much, so much of an issue if it goes out for a throw and halfway or you know, halfway into your own half. Yeah, that's a, a good way to manage weaknesses, is to um, recognise a weakness and say, oh, I'm just going to put it out on the stand. Um, 
I mean, it's Larice, and Larice is amazing. You don't want to say he's bad. Obviously, mm. he's not, and you accept his flaws. But uh, yeah, it does bother me um, a lot. <laughs> I, I hate, I hate it when we're passing it. But we've got better under Pochettino, obviously better drilled, better positioning when we're passing out. Um, but we had uh, Vorm in goal against Swansea a couple of weeks ago, and uh, when Swansea put us under pressure at the back, we passed it about. It was a, a, a really noticeable difference, mm-hmm. and there is an argument, and it's not an argument I'm making, don't give me grief for this, there's an argument to be had that in the weaker games there's a slight benefit to playing Vaughan just for his passing. He's a very good passing goalkeeper, Vaughan. That's arguably the reason Spurs bought him was because he fitted the system. I think he's far less impressive a shot stopper. Uh, he's, he's a reasonable shot stopper. He's, he's nowhere he's, near Luis's levels. Yeah. Um, but he's a very good passer, and that was always recognised at Swansea as well. Jack, do you have any thoughts on sort of passing goalkeepers? No, I think I think you're right that Lloris doesn't... He just doesn't look confident, I think, a lot of the time when he's kicking. I don't know if that's... Uh, I think it's easy to read too much into body language sometimes, but for me, watching from the press box, I often mm. think... Uh, yeah, I just don't really think he's kind of on top of it. It's clearly not part of the game that he enjoys that much. And it does often go out. But like equally, like, I think you're right that I can't actually think of times where he's kind of... He's played in an, op- an opposition striker or whatever. I think ultimately, you're right that it will. You know, the game is moving in that direction. The more that teams want to defend higher and higher up the pitch and press more, play more like kind of Guardiola-style football, the more they're going to demand a keeper who's comfortable 20, 30 yards out from his own goal. And so, obviously, you know, you're right that the natural course of football is going in that direction. And in time, we'll probably see more and more keepers like Lloris and or Manuel Neuer. Mm. Yeah. I mean, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, if you look at the goalkeepers that have had like played five plus games in the Premier League, it was a really interesting stat. I'm not normally a big one for stats, but I really like this one. It was like length of clearances, and you've got Vorm, Loris, Caballero, Bravo, Mignolet, and Carius. They their distributions have been the shortest in the Premier League. And um, do, do you want to guess who the who's got the longest distribution? Bravo. No, the, who's no, who's been kicking it the longest oh, okay, this okay. season? Uh, the West Brom keeper. No, surprisingly, oh, no. It's um, Wayne Hennessy. Wayne Hennessy, yeah, okay. who's been Pardew and Allardyce stuff. If, so. if you've got Benteke and all the players between you yeah. and Benteke are useless, yeah. you're going to want to hammer it. Out. Although they've got a good midfielder now, haven't they? They spent like 18 million yeah. on a good midfielder. But when um, I was researching this, there was this one thing when the, the Hungarians came uh, in '53 when England thought they were the greatest team in the world. And the Hungarian goalkeeper actually made the the crowd gasp because he was kind of coming out of his area to deal with things and clearing things. And it's been a very kind of English and Italian thing as well, that a goalkeeper is just a stopper. He doesn't do anything else, doesn't come for crosses. And then as the kind of South American goalkeepers have travelled, especially someone like Tafarel who came to Parma, when he started coming for crosses, it was a very un-Italian thing of dealing with... um, Dealing with the ball, so it's it's something definitely that is um, now and now has become prevalent that goalkeepers have to come and deal with these crosses and through balls. Um, as a City fan, Jack, how what do you make of your goalkeeping situation? Well, I actually, it's very easy to to be smart now and say ridiculous decision to get rid of Joe Hart and replace him with Claudio Bravo, who's useless. Uh, and of course, you know, Bravo has been very disappointing. There's no there's no questioning that. Uh, but I do think that like the logic of it made sense at the mm. time mm. Um, you know if you uh, City have, you know, City have moved heaven and earth to get Guardiola they're paying him what upwards of 10-12 million pounds a year one that entitles him to choose the goalkeeper he wants and two 
he, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna bring him in, he's got to be able to play his football, which means having his type of goalkeeper. You can't bring this guy in and say, actually, you know, fight, do do your thing, but please use this existing goalkeeper who literally can't do what you need him yeah. to be able to do. Yeah. So, in theory, fine. In practice, I don't think people had were prepared for Bravo's inability to make saves. Mm. Like, he's made about three saves since he's been in six. <laughs> it's a real problem. Um, and that's why he's gone back to Caballero, who is, you know, who frankly had a pretty poor first season or two at City, but has since gone a bit better. Uh, and clearly it's like an issue that they're going to have to readdress in the summer. With, I mean, they really wanted... He wanted Ter Stegen last summer, but realised he'd be a bit too expensive, so mm-hmm. took the budget option in Bravo. In retrospect, if they'd pushed the boat out and bought Ter Stegen last summer, they would have had a much better time of it this mm. year. Mm. So it's one of those kind of full savings where now they've spent the money on Bravo, now they have to go back in again and find someone new this summer and buy him. So I, I don't know what they're going to do, but clearly, you're right, it hasn't been fully solved yet. Yeah. Should buy Vaughan for yeah. £40 million. <laughs> <laughs> I have been quite... I thought Bravo wasn't... I mean, with his feet, he's still a great goalkeeper, but I've been surprised at how bad he is at shot-stopping yeah. because... Maybe we, he wasn't exposed like that at Barcelona, but um, I don't think he's helped out a lot by his defence. His defence no. are still that's not, true. It's not it's not finished. It's not finished defence yet. But I think the nature of the nature of playing goal for a Guardiola team is that because the defence is going to be pushed up so high, mm. you have to be able to stop a number of one on ones. Like one on ones are basically your bread and butter, yeah. yeah. Because the number of times the opposition are going to put balls over the top. And if you look at the keepers that Pep's had before, they have been really, really good at one-on-ones. Mm. Like Victor Valdez, brilliant one-on-ones. Yeah. Manuel Neuer, brilliant one-on-ones. And now they've got this guy, Bravo, who is confronted with all these one-on-ones. And yet he's not, he doesn't look quick enough on his feet to me to be able to stop them. Like, he might be a good passer and no one's disputing that. But the fact is that if he's got a striker running at him directly, he's not, he's not sharp and he's not quick enough mm. to, to stop him. And that is the big problem, really. And that is what has been so surprising and so disappointing. And that's ultimately what's killed him. Mm. Um, you know, you can kind of... You can even make your peace with him being bad on crosses because, you know, adjusting to the Premier League is difficult and the crosses are a big physical factor which you won't be used to. But um, his inability to, like, to run out and block a striker running at him is being absolutely fatal for him. And I think that's why they're going to have to get someone better in the summer. I guess it's tricky with the goalkeepers to change that because you'd hope that, you know, we've seen Pochettino improve elements of so many of our players' overall games. But with a goalkeeper, it's very hard to teach them a new skill in a way. Well, Um, I I don't know. Uh, Buffon, I mean, I'm using an example of here, for me, the greatest goalkeeper's ever existed, but he has become really good with his feet. He was never that great with his feet, and he was never really... He could, and now he's getting older. He's actually getting better with his feet. He's training and learning and improving. Mm. I think you can. I think you can coach. You know, these are footballers. These are athletes. You can coach it into them. But it just takes time. It takes and time effort and, and effort. And when you've got, you know, the funds there, then yeah. it's just quicker and easier to go out and, and buy. Yeah, a I think. Replacement. I've heard this. I can't remember who said it, but kind of whether or not it's worth your time coaching or just going out and buying. Mm. It's that kind of balance. Some managers have no choice but to coach. Others can go out and buy. So. It'll be I don't think I think Man City, Man City will probably go and buy a goalkeeper this summer go Nathan, buy Donnarumma I think Nathan um, retweeted an article from the Spurs scout recently about um, Spurs' ball playing from the back um, and it was a really interesting short piece he, he put together some stats on the proportion of 
long passes from the goalkeepers of various teams, the top teams essentially, the top six at the time, and the accuracy of the um, goalkeepers. And Lloris came out really, really well. Uh, he sort of he came second for long pass accuracy amongst the goalkeepers from those teams. He also had fewer long passes than uh, the majority of the top six goalkeepers. Bravo was the only one who had fewer long passes. Um, so, in essence, I think we are overly harsh on Larice's distribution. It, the point that the Spurs scout made was sort of what I said earlier, actually, that when it goes wrong, it tends to go spectacularly wrong. So he'll just play one straight into touch in the crowd and you kind of get grown around White Hart Lane. But actually... There's no real danger done there, and and the way when when he's forced into playing those long balls out to the flanks, they often do start attacks, and they can be quite a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if he can improve those by five percent over the next year, then that becomes even more of a weapon. We've got central defenders who are very very adept at playing those diagonal long passes out to Rosen Walker. If Luis is doing the same in, in the same way as. Alderweireld and Vertonghen and, and Dyer are able to, then that becomes very useful all of a sudden. But I find that Lloris generally does play short passes uh, into safety, and I think it's up to us in a way as fans to adapt to that and just accept that's the way we play and take the occasional, you know, missed heartbeat. Yeah, I think as Jack said, if the worst case scenario is he boots out play, then it's okay. If that's the worst, that's, that's, that's the worst that happens from his distribution. Then, I can yeah, take that. So be it. Okay, I mean, slight change of pace now. We're going to talk a bit about um, technology in football because, I mean, again, without wanting to date the podcast too much, a few things have happened recently which may have um, been led to very different results had technology been used, let's put it that way. Um, and, and Bardi, you were particularly keen to talk about this. I think you've got a specific interest in the technology or lack of. Well, um, yeah, it was the it was the Champions League tie, Real Madrid against Bayern, which I'm sure we all watched. But it just I just got really upset with um, with bad decisions, and it comes to the argument of it would have taken 30 seconds, it would have slowed the game down, but it would have taken 30 seconds, and we would have had the right decision, and the game wouldn't have have twisted on a on a sending off, which wasn't a sending off. I mean, there has to be a regulations put in place on what you can use the video tech for. But I think if, um, if a referee's given a decision like that second yellow card to Vidal where he cleanly got the ball, mm. then somebody who's watching should just buzz him saying, no, 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 stop. <laughs> this is an incorrect decision. And then start so so, so you, you like the idea of a third official watching on a screen... Uh, alongside the game and having some kind of communication device with the referee? Well, that is more or less what um, IFAB's VAR, that's Video Assistant Referee, plans are to do. Like, they are... So they're being rolled out on a kind of provisional basis over the next year or so in in certain competitions. So I believe they'll be in next year's FA Cup, uh-huh. for example. Um, and I think they'll be in the Confederations Cup this summer. And then they'll decide in, like, early next year if they will be used at the World Cup in 2018. And, you know, beyond then, I think the plan is they'll be filtered out into more and more leagues. So they've been using MLS this season, been using Eredivisie this season. There have been examples of, I forgot the name specifically, but there was one lad in the Eredivisie who was a kind of, he got booked for a tackle and then uh, the video assistant referee was watching it up on, up on telly, like, buzzed the ref and told him it was actually a red card. So this is happening. Um... And I think, unfortunately, one problem is that while FIFA are really keen on this, UEFA are not, and therefore it hasn't been trialled in the Champions League yet. I think that 
UEFA will take a bit more convincing. But it is happening. It's clearly a good thing, as these Champions League mistakes show. Uh, and fingers crossed, unless anything goes very wrong, we will have it next year's World Cup. Uh, because you're right, like when the stakes are that high, there is just no excuse for getting it wrong no. in big decisions like that. That's. I mean, I, I hadn't realised it was so far down. I, I knew they were running trials. I didn't realise it was so close to actually being implemented in... Yeah, there's been the quite thing. a lot of... A lot of the national associations are on board with it. And, uh, yeah, and therefore are trialling it in some competitions, not in all competitions. Um, and therefore it will... I mean, the next 12 to 18 months is crucial, really, because if it can be shown that it can be, like, practically useful mm. and that there are no, there aren't too many, like, uh, issues with it, then I'm sure it will only be used more and more and more. I, I kind of liked the idea of teams having a set number of referrals per game. So something happens, a manager doesn't like it, he presses a button and it stops the game, they refer it to the video video replay... If you're successful, you get to keep your referral. If you're unsuccessful, you lose it. That's kind of how it's been implemented like in other sports. Yeah, tennis being a... I'm not sure sport. if I would like that. I think managers would then start using it to their own advantage. Exactly. I think That's it, the problem. I think it, what you can imagine, Mourinho, the team's on the counter-attack, and he's like, no, 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 yeah. wait, 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 something happens. Yeah, happened. Or, yeah. 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 it become like players getting injured when they're not injured and staying mm-hmm. down. I think it has to remain impartial. Away yeah. from the managers, away from teams being able to call it, because then you'd get the situation where the players stop. No, no, we're going to refer. The game keeps going, and there's an eye in the sky keeping. Yeah. So the things. current IFAB's current VAR proposals don't have that function as part of it. Like, teams can't refer decisions. It's only it's basically either the referees on the pitch can go up to the VAR and ask for his opinion. Or the VAR can tell the ref, you know, can, can you please consult me on this because I believe you've got it wrong, or I, be, I want to check a second time. They don't, they don't allow for benches to make referrals. I, I think for exactly that reason that they don't want an element of tactical referring. Yeah. Which has happened in tennis. Which exactly. They, yeah. they, you know, they will do it just to catch a breather and slow things down. So it's a little bit more like the cricket implementation, where the on the referee on the pitch would make some kind of gesture towards the stands and the video would be consulted and then a decision would go and then there'd be a little wait while the video is watched so people say that it removes talking points from the game which is, has always been one of the main criticisms but actually in a way it adds talking points and adds a little bit of theatre and, and uh, drama to games at times There are I'm in favour but there are disadvantages um, and arguments against it about the extended time that play will be stopped for and uh, the way it can potentially uh, seem to take authority away from the referee Mm. and the potential controversy if a video review is later decided to be wrong. Um, So there are downsides and disadvantages, but I think that doesn't mean that we shouldn't persist on with it and just iron it out as we go along. Mm. I mean, it does remove talking points, but it removes the talking points where we say this is wrong. This this offside goal is just, it's, it's just wrong. Yeah, that's a why should why do we why are we losing? It's not a bad thing to lose talking points like that. I mean, as Spurs fans, we've seen this. We've seen uh, ghost goals. Like yeah. I can remember three off the top of my head goals that we either scored or had given against us, which weren't goals. Pedro Mendes and Frank Lampard, two of them. Exactly, and there was the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the FA Cup semi final. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, goal line technology was great. I mean, I mean, it's not great. It's not technology, but even this little spray thing. Now the crowd. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now the but crowd's just so stopped going. Oh, <laughs> so he sprays it. It's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the the thing is, 
we've adapted to that so quickly as well because there were lots of people when that first came in and said this is ridiculous it's the kind of thing that's ruining the game actually no everyone that's a, such a simple thing but it's made such a big difference yeah. uh, and the goal line technology I mean it's slightly different because it's a black and white decision there's no yeah. interpretation there you're either the ball's over over the line or it's not but that is fit it's pretty seamless the, the way they've implemented it is pretty seamless it's been very well yeah. done um, so I'm fascinated to see how this is done how I mean, I'm just trying to imagine how a team's countering. There's a there's a penalty decision that should have been given. Play continues and goes up the other end, and the team score. What happens then? Do they well, go back to the penalty? We saw in the World Cup club in Japan. They used it. It wasn't quite as seamless. It was a bit clunky. Where then I think it was the semi final. The referee went over to the fourth official and gave a penalty um, on that on, based on that and then we've seen it in the last set of friendlies France versus Spain they had um, they had video refs there and I think there was a goal disallowed and a goal given mm. thanks to the thanks to the, the, the third official whatever you want to mm. call it yeah I saw a presentation about this by David Ellery who I think is the technical director of IFAB uh, at Wembley Stadium the other week and he he, he he actually talked through exactly that kind of scenario that you just mentioned he said look there are obviously issues where we're not fully sure yet mm. about how we want to do it. The way he described it, I think, was minimum usage, maximum impact or something. Okay. okay. And it's something like that. But what he meant was they only want to use it, they don't want to be going to VAR every time, they only want to use it a handful of times in the game, only for big decisions which like affect the flow of the game. So that is goals, potential red cards, penalties, that kind of thing. They don't want to be doing it for kind of every specific throw-in or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think that whatever logistical issues there might be with implementation, I think overall the case for doing it massively outweighs the case against doing it, mm-hmm. as long as it can be as long as it can be effectively implemented. Sort of thinking about implementation of technology and, and new rules, as it were, in the game, is there anything else you would like to see implemented in football? Not necessarily uh, around the technology, but is it... Is there anything you'd like introduced? I mean, one example for me, for example, I really do not like that if a referee has booked a player for a foul, which is clearly a red card, they then can't retrospectively go back and ban the player. And I understand that it's in order to back the referee. Mm -hmm. But where there's been a clear mistake and someone's done something that should be punished, I I feel like they should be overturning decisions and punishing them properly. Another one is retrospective punishment for obvious diving. I think that's it could be so easily implemented and would have a, an impact on on um, the way players behave on the pitch. Yeah, um, yeah, not being able to repeal yellow cards when they've been wrongly awarded, mm-hmm. all of that. Um, yeah, uh, the yeah, <laughs> you've, you've covered them all really. You haven't really left us any. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, did. I had a, a, an idea a while ago about before video technology about two linesmen. So you have a, a line. I like, so you have I've four heard that I like that. Oh, really, I thought I invented it. I thought I invented that. <laughs> let's say you thought of it before me. Okay. But, um, but if, I, if both linos, <laughs> if both linos press the button at the same time, then it's offside. So, Ooh, so double positive. But, so double positive, exactly. So if only one goes, <laughs> it's not, but obviously video tech is a lot better. But that was that was the thing I invented. <laughs> The, the thing with the extra officials in, in uh, the Europa League winds me up because they don't do anything. You've got these people behind the goals watching. And they I don't, remember they... them disallowing a Spurs goal at home once. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't remember that. I, 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 was, I don't remember them doing so. anything. Um, but yeah, I like the extra linesman idea. I think that's a sensible suggestion. Mm. But nothing else? No, video no, tech I... is better than that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Cool. Well, um, I mean, we're, we're doing pretty well time-wise. We've, we've been going a fair old while. So let's, um, let's answer some questions. We had loads of questions uh, when I put the call out this week um, on Reddit and Facebook. So we'll start off with a question from Cameron Anglum from the Broad and Hotspur podcast, which is the Philadelphia Spurs podcast. He got in touch on Facebook uh, to say, how should our ta- tactical setup inform our transfer moves this summer? If three at the back is our primary setup next year, brackets, will it be? What positions need the most strengthening? And Burgle Your Turds on Reddit, uh, who is a regular contributor to all things Fighting Cock, so thank you for that, it says, uh, more simply, ins and outs this summer. Uh, essentially, whenever we've got Wanyama in the team, we need to play a back three, and we should have Wanyama in the team because he's really good at what he does. So, um, although we should also be prepared to play the forty-three-one, we are predominantly a three at the back side, and for that reason, we need more depth. We need a right-footed centre back, and if we're going to move on Wimmer, which looks um, likely for whatever reason, then we also need another left centre uh, back, left-footed centre back. Um, I think we also need a winger. Uh, Pochettino wants to have a squad winger. Um, and I mentioned earlier back up to Ericsson and somehow I don't know if it's possible we want depth for Dembele hmm. yeah I agree we need um, with three at the back you need six competent centre backs who can play there and we haven't seen enough of Carter Vickers and after Wimmer's terrible 45 minutes away at City I don't think we'll ever see him again I don't think he'll ever play for Spurs yeah, I get that vibe, but I think it's a pity because I thought Vimmer played very well last year when called upon in his first season. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think he did better than anyone could have imagined he would do. Uh, and actually, I think I've mentioned this before, but he, when he first joined Spurs, lots of the... Uh, you, you sort of get these articles popping out up from experts from other countries who've seen him play in, in the, the league they, they've come from. And several German football experts said that his big weakness was his distribution. And actually, his passing last year was pretty good, I thought, mm. on the whole. Surprisingly good. And, and maybe that's because my expectations have been lowered, and so he surpassed them quite easily. But I was quite impressed with his um, distribution. He was a bit slow on return at times. I don't Do you blame him for losing Alexis Sanchez when you drew two all with Arsenal? In the game which, if you'd won, you would have gone top and put the pressure on Leicester. You <laughs> could have won the title. All I'm saying is, Vimmer that was the biggest the goal. Yeah, yeah. Vimmer cost the title with that goal against Arsenal last year. That was the game that killed Tottenham. Well, forget about Chelsea, forget about West Brom. Vimmer, that goal that Harry Kane scored, for me, Vimmer destroyed that goal for me because that goal was no longer a win, a North London derby winning so, yeah, goal. Yeah. It became a goal in a derby which we lost, which we drew to yeah. 10 men. So, yeah, I'd actually, yeah, fuck Vimmer. But, but Sanchez, I mean, Sanchez is one of the best players in the league and he's going to turn players occasionally. I, I guess Alderweireld wouldn't have let it happen. Vertonghen probably wouldn't let it happen either. So there is definitely an element of blame. But um, I think Vimmer did well in his first season overall. This year he's not done well when he's been called upon. That's for sure. He, I mean, he bizarrely played left back in one game, for needs must and all that. But he he looked very um, like a fish out of water at left back. He wasn't a good fit for that role. Um, and I think you're right. I think he will. I think he will move on. Yeah. I think the the key for me is versatile players. We need play. Yeah. We need to sign players who are adaptable and can play a number of different positions. And that's difficult. I mean, there aren't many players have tended to be specialists over the last few years and now we we need players who have just generalist abilities that can do can do a number of different jobs uh, and I'm fascinated to see who he targets there's been the ongoing link with um, Zaha he's been linked for well over a year now and he seems to like him and Kudu 
hasn't worked out for one reason or another, which leads us onto a question a bit later. But um, he's been looking for that pacey winger who can stretch teams and, and make a difference potentially off the bench. So that seems like one that could happen. Um, yeah, I think the, the, actually the tactical considerations do have an impact on the targets. And like Bardi says, you do need more centre-backs. But I think if you have players who have two positions they're equally adept in, you haven't necessarily got to have six centre-backs. You can have four or five centre-backs who can also... Yeah. I, you see what I'm saying? I just want enough centre-backs so we don't go to Monaco away with, like, Rimmer at centre-back. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's absolutely all I fair. Want. I mean, would you, be, would you be happy with four centre-backs... Dyer, who can play two positions, and Carter Vickers as a backup youngster. Yeah, I mean, I had a player in my head that was going to say someone who can play centre back and central midfield, but it's gone. But that's we do need an, an, another Dyer, someone flexible. Mm. Yeah, flexibility is obviously the, the number one thing Pochettino is looking for, uh, and therefore he will want players who can, uh, you know, who can do more than one position. Centre back, they kind of. You know, they've, they've, I think they've managed to absorb injuries fairly well to Toby and Jan this year. So, but clearly, they, you know, they're probably going to want another body at centre back um, before they do anything else. On the presumption that I, I imagine that Vimmer will go and Carter Vickers will stay mm. this summer. Mm. Nathan, you mentioned the, the I think it was you mentioned finding cover for Dembele. Um, you don't see Winks as being able no. to to sort of fit in there. I mean, with Wanyama and Dyer, you've got pretty good coverage of the holding midfield role. Dembele is difficult to replace because he has such a unique skill set, but Winks has done a good job when called upon. <laughs> yeah, I wrote an article about how I feel but when we were uh, having more trouble earlier in the season that the Winks is really good and we should bring Winks in. Um, and I've gone back on that now that it's more popular because I'm that contrarian. Um, <laughs> no, I, I like Winks. I think he's a really talented player, really good, gives us something else that we don't have in central midfield. But if you take the Burnley game uh, as example, and, and maybe it's half to judge a, a young player based on a single game or even 45 minutes, I appreciate that. Um, but we just weren't able to um, build the ball out in, in the way that we like to. Uh, we weren't comfortable passing to him under pressure like we do with Dembele and that completely disrupted us which is why we had to why we were successful when we did eventually change to 4-3-1 with Dembele on the pitch Okay and that, that leads on nicely because we had a question from Mike Cheller on Reddit who says we've had a handful of Ross Barkley rumours over the past few months do you think he would fit in at Spurs if so what role would he play can he become good enough defensively to be a box-to-box midfielder for us and I'm just wondering whether you feel that Barkley could potentially be that one that Poch could mould into a sort of a new Dembele in a way. Yeah, I did a video piece a little while ago on um, Ross Barkley, and I feel that he's been largely misused throughout his career as an attacking midfielder. He's um, physically and technically so, so impressive, mm. um, but he gets the ball in the final thirds and all he does is shoot it into the nearest defender or the middle <laughs> of the goal. Um so yeah, he's got a lot or, or, or half the attributes necessary to play the the Dembele role. Um, so there's an interesting sort of um, coaching idea: Can you turn Ross Barkley into Dembele? Can Pochettino turn Ross Barkley into Dembele? Uh, and it's sort of an interesting idea if you look at it from the perspective of he is um, a player getting towards the end of his contract at Everton, and maybe they're not happy with him, and maybe he's on the way out. And if you can pick him up fairly cheaply and, and he's a project and fair enough but if you're taking away 
that he's actually fairly informed at the moment and it's his boyhood club and they don't want to let him go and he's English and he's young we're going to end up paying above 30 million above 35 million for for a gamble for a project and I don't think that's the right way to go about it yeah I, I think that if Barkley I think Barkley does have the potential to be that Dembele type player there's not that many midfielders in the Premier League who can take the ball in tight space beat people in the middle of the pitch like that is what makes Dembele so special and Barkley, in theory, can do that. Uh, he's also like, you know, so he's got that technical skill. He can beat people. He's big and strong. You do always wonder with Barkley, does he have the kind of intelligence to learn from Pochettino and to become the player Pochettino wants him, wants him to become? Like that, that is really the big question that hangs over him because, I mean, if we're honest, Barkley's not really improved that much since mm. he's been at, mm. into the first team at Everton. Like he's been playing first team football about five years now. Um, he hasn't really worked on the side of the game that doesn't come naturally to him. He's not very good defensively. He's not very good tactically, if we're honest. Um, and, you know, so that, that is a big challenge. And, it's you know, Pochettino's a great coach, but he's not a miracle worker. Like, he's not managed to make Musa Sissoko any good, for example. <laughs> and therefore, it's not automatic that just because they might, you know, they could go and spend £30 million on Barkley and he could be another Sissoko. Yeah. So we, it's a huge, it's a huge risk to take because that would be a big chunk of Tottenham's transfer budget if they were to spend it on him. But equally, you know, Dembele is in his 30s now. I think he's probably, I think he's been a little bit patchy at times this year. He's had some amazing games. Yeah. Equally, he's kind of, I don't think he looks quite as fit and strong as he did last year. So, and at some point, they are going to have to replace him. And as much as I love Harry Wiggs, I think he's a brilliant player. He's a really good lad. But he doesn't quite have that kind of, that sort of physical burst, I think, that, say, Barkley and Dembele have. I think he's a slightly different type of midfielder. And so for that reason, yeah, mate. Maybe Barkley would be the natural, uh, or not the natural replacement for Dembele, but a potential replacement for Dembele if lots of things were to go right. Yeah, I agree with the points made. I can't really add anything there, but I would like to get, um, get people's opinions on um, T from the Fighting Cock put out a tweet about Pogba and whether Pogba would walk into um, any other team in the Premier League. And I'm a huge Pogba fan, and I'm not saying Spurs should buy Pogba because we can't, but I would like. I think that's the kind of player we need to replace Dembele and I think he would walk straight into our team so I would just like to get other people's opinions on Pogba when we played United earlier in the season um, I was very impressed by Pogba quietly impressed by him um, and he got a lot of criticism in that game bizarrely from Spurs fans United fans said he did quite well I thought he outmuscled Dembele on a number of occasions Which and I have no rarely does. seen that happen and I was really impressed by how on top of Dembele he was from the first minute to the 90th um, and actually I thought that would be his breakout game and he'd go on to become this amazing midfielder and drive Man United forward and I predicted that I think I even predicted they'd win the league this year or something crazy like that um, certainly thought they'd be top four comfortably and I thought Pogba would be a big part of that like you I'm quite a big fan of his um, yeah, absolutely. He'd be amazing at Spurs, he, and he'd fit in wonderfully with Pochettino as well. Yeah, like I, I again, I love Pogba as a player. I think he's a fascinating player, and um, there's not there's so few players around who've got his skills. It would be interesting to see how he would do under a Pochettino type manager, a manager who is so like specific in yeah. terms of what he wants. That said, he's kind. Of, I mean, Mourinho is like that, and I, you know, I don't really think he's fully got through to Pogba yet to be honest I don't think he's kind of I don't think Pogba looks like a Mourinho player yet I don't think he's kind of got that tactical focus Mourinho doesn't have the man management skills that Pochettino has I don't think I think Mourinho's can really alienate players quickly 
um, Pochettino is much more likely to bring someone like that on board. I think uh, personally, just I mean, did you want to talk about? Yeah, I'd like to. Hear, I want to hear what Nathan's got yeah. to say about. Yeah, Pogba. I think um, Pogba is potentially the central midfielder of his generation, and he came to England um, with a reputation for getting goals and assists. And he's come here and he's now playing in a two-man Mourinho midfield. Um, and he's dominating games. He's outstanding and he's not getting goals. So people are saying he's rubbish mm. and he's not worth the uh, enormous amount of money that was paid for him. Um, but he's creating a ton of chances. He's hitting the crossbar regularly. Um, he's he's fantastic and that'll he, become obvious soon. That's a really... I mean, his stats this year, I don't know that not everyone's into stats. His stats are fantastic. He yeah. stands out in nearly every field basically yeah. but actually um, something that might surprise you about Ross Barkley is he's actually completed the third he's co- um, created the third most chances this season behind Ericsson and De Bruyne more than David Silva in a similar number of matches and it works out as I think it's 2.7 key passes per game whereas Ericsson and De Bruyne were just over three so he's he's just below uh, Willian and Tadic and Ozil who are on 2.8 and that's Interesting, particularly because Everton fans don't feel that Barkley is in his best position as a 10, which is where he's played, or he's kind of played as a 10 or from the right this year. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of the created chances stat because it, it essentially um, gives an equal point to whether it is a disguised reverse through ball into the six-yard box or yeah. whether it's a five-yard sideways pass to a long shot from, from 30 yards. A Tom Carroll fire assist. Uh, yeah, Tom Carroll fire. Um, and if you look, there's a, a bloke on Twitter, football fact man, Paul Riley, and he does. he's got up on his site, he's got the um, chance creation... Um, graphics and it shows where the parties are starting, where the parties are ending that are counting as create chances. You look at Barclays and 90% of his are outside the box whilst Ericsson is, mm. is getting into dangerous places. So. Interesting, really interesting. Um, okay, we had another question from Reddit from Ndebe and DB who says, Nkudu, what gives? I think most fans like what we've seen of him, so why the lack of minutes seems a similar ilk of Townsend in being a pacey direct winger and another semi-popular player with a fan base, but who also struggled under Pochettino, yet we're constantly linked with pacey, direct, uh, pacey creative direct wingers. What does he actually want from the position? Um, I mean, I, I'm happy to start in that I just don't think Akud is very good. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, some people might think that's harsh. He's only played 313 minutes, so perhaps that's not enough time to pass judgment either way, but I will anyway. Um, he started away at Liverpool in the EFL Cup and he was pretty terrible. Onimar took a lot of the stick in that game, but Nkudu was worse in my opinion. Um, he was subbed at half-time for Janssen against Wickham. Janssen then came on, I think, scored a goal and got two assists, or it might be the other way around. Uh, and then he, he got 20 minutes against Villa in which he did get an assist for the Ben Davies header with a cross which was actually behind Davies and asked a lot from him. And he, <laughs> Davies did brilliantly to score from him. Um, I just don't think he's that good. I think he runs into blind alleys a lot. I don't think he tracks back particularly well and I think he, he probably would need to move to the right if he was to ever make it um, in the Premier League. Do you think he's better than Clinton and G? I don't think there's a discernible difference between them. I actually think and G looked more promising in the minutes he had. And G had that good sub appearance against City in the 4-1 win at home. Was yeah. that the one where he hit, a, hit the post with a curve? No, he did a really nice turn. He destroyed Kolarov. weird finish where he rounded Caballero. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that whole switching up of those two odd. Uh, I guess it was just a cheap-ish punt. And G's more of a forward, sort of running behind the centre-back 
like what Deli Ali has done for us when he played yeah. on the left whilst um, Nkudu is more of a down the touch line being his man with uh, sort of Aaron Lennon-esque kind of player and it is Aaron Lennon-esque because his final ball looks patchy to me <laughs> um, he's, he's a real rough diamond I just don't think he has any kind of he has no kind of Get, go to him. He, does, he doesn't get the ball. He doesn't go, doesn't drive at plays. He always stays on the left. He cuts inside, but he doesn't cut in, inside with any purpose. Mm. And um, I haven't seen anything. He had a, he, to be fair. He did play okay away to Moscow. He had a nice little yeah, cameo. He, I said that game. He turned the game when he came yeah, on. That's Spur, a fair point. Spurs yeah. were doing nothing basically. Then he came on with twenty minutes left. Went out the left. Pochettino mm-hmm. changed the system. He hauled off Janssen to put Son through the middle and Kudu came on. Yeah. I think, and then like within about two minutes of that change, Son scored the win. I think it was set up by Nkudu. Um, or it was from like a move started by Nkudu. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, but, and yeah, that was the point where I thought, well, you know, he's turned a big, you know, big Champions League win. This was back when we thought Spurs were going to get out of the group. Mm. Uh, maybe Nkudu is better than NG. And yet, unfortunately, it looks like he's going to finish his first Tottenham Season with like in G one good sub appearance and basically nothing else to show for it. Yeah. So I mean, the question kind of says, what what do we want from that position? Mane is what we want. Mane is yeah. what he's been looking for the whole time, yeah. isn't it? And and you don't find many Manes. He's an unbelievably talented player, one of the best players in the league, I would say. Um, and I don't think we're going to get a Mane f- uh, very easily if we're sort of fishing around at that price level in, in France I think we'd be very lucky to find a Mane so maybe it is that you spend 30 million on Zahar um, I'm not convinced Zahar's the answer either personally uh, I think what is criminal in my opinion is that Nkudu's taken minutes and bench spots that could have been given to Marcus Edwards who is a, a genuine talent who we, we could there's more of an upside to Edwards um, so that that does annoy me the other thing to mention is that Onomar, whenever he's played, has tended to be from the wing, and that's not his position as a central midfielder. So perhaps, again, Pochettino's trying to use someone who has a, a bit of pace, legs to beat a man and get on the outside. So perhaps that is what he desperately craves, just the ability to go past someone on the wing. Sissoko obviously has played there as well, yep. and he, he looks not a winger to me in not any way footballer. not a footballer um, but definitely not a winger I mean Sissoko's a central midfielder and a three man midfielder and yep. nothing else please God um, but I think that's what he's looking for broadly uh, final thing I think we've covered all the questions actually haven't we mm-hmm. yeah we've done the questions so the last we like to do our further reading section which is where we have an opportunity to speak about stuff we've read or listened to or watched um, in the recent times and kind of make recommendations for um, extra inch listeners so um, do you want to start with Nathan? Yeah there was a recent Stats Bomb article by James York that's really good um, I keep plugging analytics whenever I'm on this I'm not an analytics guy but I'm fond of it I guess um, so if you're into your expected goals or you're not and you want to uh, sort of see what that's all about then that's a, a really good article it's, it's maybe uh, a little more critical than you might uh, feel comfortable with maybe some harsh truths um, I thought it was maybe overly critical at some point um, but a, a really good really good article who, on stats who form. Was it critical of? Oh. Uh, Spurs it's, it's, it's a, a, note, a statistical overview of our season James always writes well and makes convincing arguments so I will definitely yep. give that a go and, and um, yeah I'm sure he'll change some of my opinions 
Jack, any um, Yeah, two books that are out at the moment, or one that's just come out, which is No Hunger in Paradise by Mike Calvin, which is about uh, youth football yeah. and the academies. That's out today. That is um, probably not when you'll be listening to this podcast, but it is very good. And the other one is Mister by Rory Smith, which is out now in paperback, which is about uh, British coaches who took football to Europe and across the world in the first half of the 20th century, primarily. And that's a really interesting story about you know, the development of coaching, the development of football abroad through British coaches. So that's Mr. by Rory Smith and No Hunger in Paradise by Mike, Mike Calvin. Brilliant. Two Lovely. very good football books. Fantastic. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, I just actually bought Mr. I just I downloaded it Sorry. onto my Kindle, so it's, it's my next one to read. But I've been... Um, I've been watching these, I don't know if you've seen them, these Umaxit um, YouTube clips, which are, you know, I don't know what Umaxit is, I think it's some gambling thing, but they're producing uh, a whole load of tactical four, five-minute videos, Ooh. which uh, illustrated, I think, James Devine, Sean Devine, I think is the chap that does it. It's uh, There's like an app where you can sort of build your own video on the app okay. that they use. Well, it's, it's great little videos. This week's they did one on Enganches and Trecoartistas, and it was really interesting it's three four minutes long and if you want a kind of brief overview about the history of certain positions and certain famous teams that's great and book wise um michael cox zonal Markin, he's just well ready for pre-order he's got a book out called the mixer which i've um which i pre-ordered which looks to be quite interesting and the aim is to get michael on at some point so he can plug his book and we can have a chat with michael about yes. tactics generally and he certainly seemed keen when i spoke to him about it um i mentioned an article earlier by the Spurs scout, he's running a really nice little um, blog. Um, it was called The Surprisingly Effective Long Ball from the Back. That was a very good article. I enjoyed that. Uh, and also, I'm sure everyone would have watched it by now, but if you haven't, uh, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher's analysis of Spurs on Monday Night Football in uh, after the Bournemouth game, so mid-April, was an absolute joy to, to watch. And, I mean, they both speak about Spurs with such enthusiasm because I think they both love Pochettino but um, hunt that out and watch it if you've not seen it because it's unbelievable, it's brilliant. Okay, I think that's it. So we just need to say thank you very much to Jack for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Great stuff. And Nathan, thanks again for uh, making the trek. Always a pleasure. And my psychic and best friend, Bardi, it's been a pleasure spending time with you as ever. That's all we do, thank you. (laughs) And we should be back hopefully in roughly four to six weeks. If you've enjoyed it, give us some feedback and ideas for talking points on Reddit, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, feel free to leave reviews on the Fighting Cock um, on iTunes. And yeah, we'll see you then. Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 This summer, when you're on the go, stay connected to what matters most with access to over 3 million Cox Wi Fi hotspots. Learn more at Cox.com. Ask Ashley the podcast is sponsored by Cox. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.